ancient Chinese master that goes that if your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. I think the Buddha went on a little bit to amplify this a little when he said, or he asked the question, he said, who is my enemy? And he said, my mind is my enemy. And then he went on to say, who is my friend? He said, my mind is my friend. I think we often have a really interesting relationship to our mind. We tend to blame our mind for a lot. We often think that if only I had a different mind, you know, my life would be so different. You know, if I had a different mind, my, my meditation would be so much better. We, keep, we say, my mind does this, as if it's some kind of independent entity that has its own existence, quite apart from anything that we wish for. And sometimes I think we, we, as much as the kind of mind is sort of emulated and promoted in our culture, it also, I think, is also kind of despised and blamed and, and seen as being so much an obstacle or as something that gets us into trouble. And I think there's often this kind of regarding of the mind as, as something that is just static. You know, it's like it's preformed, that it only has certain ways of operating, certain ways of moving that are kind of eternal and unchangeable. I think one of the first things that we learn in meditation, of course, is that this is really quite untrue. We see this through our direct experience. What we see is that more and more is the mind is a potential. It is a potential that there is absolutely nothing static about our mind. That it is changing from moment to moment. And the changes that our minds go through are the changes that happen because our feelings change and our intentions change. And the, these factors of feeling and intention are actually what creates the mind of the moment, which of course is never the same. We see ourselves in a day moving from happiness to sadness, from boredom to interest, from being fearful to being trusting, from being depressed to being elated. So many countless changes within the shape of our mind. Now, when we're not so mindful, I think we often do have the experience of being somewhat powerless in the force of all these changes, almost as if the mind is something that just happens to us. The more mindful we are, the more actually do we see the relationship of mind and feeling. Um, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, there is, there is only one, there's not two separate words for heart and mind. There's the word citta. <coughs> Embodying or explaining the kind of constant interdependence and interrelationship of feeling and thought. 
we discover with mindfulness actually that also we are not powerless. I think this is actually one of the great liberations of meditation. The understanding that we are actually not a kind of powerless victim of our mind's kind of dance. That we're not passive, um, not a victim of the thoughts and moods and circumstances that flow through our lives, not only outwardly, but also inwardly. Because, of course, what happens in meditation is that we are introducing something quite dramatic into our flow of experience. We are actually introducing mindfulness and clear intention. I mean, our willingness to be present, our willingness to listen, our willingness to investigate, to explore. This is actually the really primary factor that allows us to be taught and enriched, actually, by the flow of change inwardly. The introduction of mindfulness and clear intention not only changes our inner experience, but as people, many people in practice experience, it also changes actually their outer experience. Because not only do they find it a steadier, clearer way of being present inwardly, but also find then the way of embodying that, expressing that, articulating that actually in their lives. When we really just spend even a few hours just kind of observing and being in touch with our inner climate, we see actually there's a lot of things that we can choose to do in our minds. I mean, we can you know, spend a lot of time fantasizing um, of stoking resentment. We can spend a lot of time telling stories to ourselves. Uh, anticipating the future, regretting things that have gone by. We can spend a lot of time in this kind of thought-created world, which is not actually very often in those moments, connected with the simple realities of the moment. We can also choose, actually, to be much clearer. We discover that the greater access to mindfulness, to loving-kindness that we have, is the degree where we can actually choose where our attention rests in the morning, in the moment. Now that choice is not about kind of manipulating our inner experience. That choosing, that capacity to choose where our attention rests in the moment is really born actually of of wisdom, of understanding. Because the more time that we spend actually just really attending and listening to our inner world, there is an understanding that grows from that which is actually really significant and really primary in any kind of transformation. And the understanding that grows is that we really do start to understand very, very clearly what it is inwardly that leads to contraction, to suffering, to alienation, to distance, 
And what it is inwardly that leads to a greater sense of happiness, of well-being, of clarity, of connectedness. And there's often a very big distinction between those paths. I mean, we do begin to see that when we, we dwell, for example, with our thoughts, when we become preoccupied, when we become obsessive, in judgment, in blame, in in preoccupation, in fantasy, in rehearsal, we we see actually the ways that we become increasingly tight, contracted inwardly, anxious, agitated. We see actually that those avenues don't lead to well-being. But sometimes they're very habitual, actually. Sometimes they're just very habitual. I mean, it's not like we get up in the morning and decide, oh, it's a, it's a great day to be obsessive or it's a great day to be depressed. I mean, few of us would actually consciously make those choices. But what we do see is that there are often kind of these grooves in our consciousness that are very familiar pathways, very familiar uh, grooves that we've traveled a thousand times before. We also discover actually that with attention, with mindfulness, with understanding, we actually can undo some of those habits that, you know, we become more and more close actually to the beginning of some of those uh, meanderings. And the closer we are to the beginnings, the, the more access we have to choices such as being able to let go, being able to bring loving kindness being able to bring some investigation rather than just being caught in the habit of it. Now the practice of loving kindness, one of, you know, more and more over the years, I, you know, as I've practiced loving kindness, as I've seen other people practice loving kindness, more and more I've actually begun to really honor and appreciate its power to bring about very, very immediate and very powerful changes in our life, not just because we practice it inwardly, because also we apply it. And of course, the wonderful thing about loving-kindness practice is that it is, of course, not geographical. You don't have to be in a special posture or a special place or a special environment. You don't have to be sort of, you know, removed from the world or removed from your life to cultivate loving-kindness. In fact, the very place for its cultivation is very much in the midst of our lives, in the midst of activity, in the midst of engagement, in the midst of relationships. And it has some very specific, I think, benefits, I might say, or applications. One of the aspects that I really appreciate about loving-kindness meditation is the way that it does offer a sense of refuge, a sanctuary inwardly. I mean, all of us in our life really do, to different degrees, face times and experiences when a lot of the certainties in our lives disintegrate. Um, you know, our health might fall apart. Um, we might suddenly find difficulty in relationships that we thought were stable. We suddenly find people that we've cared for who disappoint us or betray us or disillusion us in some way. We face loss. This is, you know, part of 
being human, part of living, that none of us can always rely on a predictable, safe, certain life. Things change. And often when things do fall apart, those, those are the times when we're very inclined to panic in a way. You know, to become very anxious, to become very agitated. Those are the times when often when our certainties begin to disintegrate, that our minds tend to become the most wild. You know, they, they become, our minds become quite desperate, a, a, an expression of a sort of inner feeling of anxiety, a desperation of, you know, how to fix something, how to find the right answer, how to get out of the difficult, how to make it go away, how to control things. And that is, that is the response of anxiety, it is the response of uncertainty. Also, what we do discover is that it's actually very rare that wise action, that clear choice, that clear responses come from the agitated mind. Very often when we're panicky and desperate, you know, we're willing to try almost anything, but we, we can be often so desperate to get out of the difficult that we, it's very hard for us to find the patience to stand still to listen inwardly, to encourage a more intuitive response, to know what wise action is, to know what wise choice is, to know what is possible for us. And because wise action doesn't come out of the agitated mind, often in those times in our life when things are really shattered or dissolving, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to trust that stillness and that loving-kindness and that calmness are actually going to be the places of our greatest and deepest guidance. And I think this is a shift that we can make through practice. We, in a way, meta practice protects the mind. That's how I understand it. It protects the mind. In the times when we're most prone to get agitated, to become desperate, to become obsessive, to dwell on things that we can't alter by thinking, but we dwell upon them anyway, that meta practice actually has the power to protect the mind. Because somehow we make that step of understanding that what is needed in that moment is not this kind of wild flailing about for some elusive answer, that what is really needed in that moment is to find a place of stillness and steadiness within our own hearts and minds not to uh, try to divorce ourselves from the difficult, but first to find a way of being within the difficult that is not just wounded and battered. In times of difficulty, mental practice is actually a great ally. You know, there's a certain simplicity when the mind is, is doing its kind of desperate floundering to simplify, to totally simplify, to, to acknowledge the need in that moment to deeply take care of our own well-being, to deeply take care of the quality of our heart and consciousness. I mean, certainly, you know, at times in my own life when, I, when things have been really challenging, I personally have found meta practice one of the greatest supports. You know, just simplify. Let things be. Listen inwardly. Then find the response that is needed. 
I think another place where loving-kindness practice is truly helpful are in those places and situations and relationships in our life where we feel the greatest sense of aversion and pain. Now, nobody likes pain, obviously, and, and certainly there is no, no encouragement within this tradition to go out and seek pain. You know, mostly in our lives we find we don't have to do that. There's enough that seems to come and seek us. But when aversion is layered upon pain, it's very difficult to heal anything at all. And, you know, aversion is one of those life responses. You know, we can feel aversion for other people. We can feel quite substantial aversion for ourselves at times. We can find a lot of aversion for life situations that don't go according to our plan, you know, that don't go according to our expectations. And aversion is actually very paralyzing. It's, it's, it's very crippling in a way, you know, because we're, we're so desperate to get away from something that we can't really make room for it to be there. You know, one of the kind of most essential, enduring teachers in, the, uh, in this practice is learn to be with what is. That this is actually where you find the deepest peace. Certainly, I think one of the fastest ways to transformation is to turn directly towards those things that we find most difficult. And this is not just major life crises where we find aversion. You know, but the simple daily aversions that arise, you know, you get on a train and there's no seat, you know, you sit in your car and, you know, it, it doesn't start. You know, you travel to work and there's the traffic jam. You know, you go to the bank and there's the line. You know, there's so many life situations that seem designed just to provoke aversion for us. And so often our responses in those moments is this huge amount of shouting at the world, you know. It shouldn't be like this, you know, it should be different, you should be different. That whole song we sing inwardly, is it helpful to us? Usually not. You know, usually not. I think sometimes in those moments, you know, aversion really wants, is, is a kind of demand upon the moment that something ends, that it goes away. Loving kindness allows us to be with things as they are, when they are. There's something very different, you know, in my experience about sitting in a car in a traffic jam, you know, and, and joining in a kind of collective fuming, <laughs> you know. It, it, it can feel, you know, kind of, you know, in a way, kind of heartening, in a way, to see everybody around you engaged in the same negativity. And it's such a different experience to sit in that same traffic jam and say, may I be happy, you know? May I be happy if we've got something better to do with our minds in that moment? Not. You know, we can't actually manipulate the world always to fit in with our demands. Metta practice teaches us to turn towards pain without aversion. To turn towards the unsatisfactory, the frustrating, without aversion. And a different way of being there actually unfolds for us. Instead of saying, oh, this is stopping, you know, this situation is stopping me from doing something, 
Instead we say, this situation is actually providing me with the opportunity to do something. It's providing me with the opportunity to, to, to renew my sense of presence, to, to cultivate loving-kindness and patience and acceptance and tolerance. And that's actually such a major shift in at- attitude. Rather than saying that something is preventing me from doing something, that very situation becomes a situation which is enabling me to do something. I think another of the dimensions in which having kindness practice is truly helpful is in terms of the inner healing and inner renewal. I do think that in meditation practice, sometimes people are a little shocked and stunned to discover how much weight they carry within themselves of, you know, of sadness, of historical wounds, of feelings of self-judgment and inner impatience and inner demand. And how often, you know, the inner critic really seems to take, you know, how rarely the inner critic seems to take a break. You know, the, the kind of ideals of inner perfection, the images of inner perfection, which can so permeate our life and our world. You know, recently, I remember reading this article on the E-woman and the E-man, the everything woman and the everything man. You know, this kind of promotion of, of this ideal of who we should be, the everything person. So much of our life can be really spent in the pursuit of looking at what we need to gain to be perfect. And in meditation practice, of course, we reverse that that trend and we say, what do we need to let go of to be free? And I think in the midst of this kind of climate, sometimes that forms of inner harshness, of, you know, the never good enough mind, that loving-kindness actually can be quite powerful kind of wake-up call. Just remembering that there's a different voice we can listen to in that moment, other than the voice of the critic. That there's a different kind of relationship that actually can be formed in that moment, of kindness rather than harshness, of acceptance rather than rejection. And this is not just something we do once. We do it really countless times, so many times. Another aspect which I think is really important about meta practice is it really reminds us of the kind of inner climate or the kind of inner spirit or approach that really makes all meditation practice possible, that it makes deepening possible. You know, in, in teaching retreats and talking with people, I'm you know, often again and again amazed at, at how often we, we, we can bring into retreats such a, a, a kind of ambitiousness, demand, um, striving, forcing, overcoming kind of mind as if, you know, our spiritual task is is this huge mountain that must be, you know, climbed and that there's so much to vanquish and overcome on the way. And for most people, they discover that that kind of approach tends to actually hinder 
their practice rather than help. That, you know, when our life and our meditation practice is littered with goals and ideals and images, that we so often are left in that place of just wanting and never feeling that we get what we want. I mean, most of us in our life, of course, experience that very, we don't do well in environments where we're being shouted at and scolded and judged and, and, and demanded upon. Most of us do well in our lives in environments where there's a sense of trust, of acceptance, of kindness, of understanding, that this is actually where we find intimacy. And then this is also true in our meditation practice, which is actually about intimacy about being intimate with ourselves, about being intimate with all things. That intimacy asks for that climate of kindness. It doesn't mean a kind of modeled loving kindness, you know, of indulging or just being lost. But deepening in meditation practice does ask for those prerequisites of kindness, of patience, of acceptance, of tolerance, of generosity, of forgiveness. And I really do think that method practice sometimes really reminds us of the importance of cultivating that inner climate. And that doesn't mean, of course, that, that inner climate of kindness, it doesn't mean a sort of denial of wise and clear and decisive action in our life. This is necessary for all of us. <coughs> We're asked to be very much participants in this world and, and how it's created. We're asked to contribute. We're asked to bring about the, the end of suffering, the end of sorrow. And for all of us, that often asks us to find the, the right actions, the right words, the right responses. But I do trust, actually, that loving kindness enables that clarity. So it's not always just a kind of sentimental, uh, romantic relationship to life. Sometimes it's very incisive, very clear. It's also interesting that the more familiar that we become with loving-kindness practice, the more accessible does it become for us. We, we start to pick up, from this, uh, uh, pick up the signals from our world. You know, when you hear a siren in the night, when you hear the cry of a child, you know, when you, when you hear, uh, you know, the distress of an animal, when you walk down the street and, and, and you see the, the person who looks so confused or so, so bereft, you know, when you stand in the line at the supermarket and see the kind of harried look on the, the cashier's face, that all of those kind of signals from the world actually start to really register with us. Instead of just being, oh, it's just that. We actually start to find ourselves starting to listen to the world much more closely. And each one of those signals actually becomes a kind of catalyst and a kind of trigger for the, for the development, for the nurturing of loving kindness. Now, we don't know, of course, that that has any effect upon the world whatsoever. But we do know that it actually it has an effect upon the climate of our heart and mind and our world of that moment. You know, if we're in touch with that, we're actually more in touch with life. We're more in touch with life. We're more in touch with the lives of other people, the, the, the kind of the rhythm of, of, of pain, of sorrow, 
And there comes and grows an increasing sense of, of sensitivity and interconnectedness. I think loving kindness teaches us to kind of more pick up on the signals inwardly. I mean outwardly, but also inwardly. You know, when, when we pick up on the signal from our aching knee or our, you know, our, our, a signal of a distressed emotion within ourselves, we become more and more inclined to, to greet that with a sense of care and sensitivity that what is really needed in this moment for healing, for a sense of renewal. Now, loving-kindness practice, like any other practice of meditation, of course, does rely upon our application, upon our embodiment of it. You know, I think at the end of retreats, you know, we often give these talks where we have all kinds of prescriptions, you know. You know, sit every day, read some, you know, be with like-minded people, um, go on retreat. You know, all of these things are good, they're great. And yet, none of them make the slightest bit of difference, of course, unless we're really willing to embody them. You know, unless we're really willing to learn. I mean, I, you know, we see that on a retreat. I mean, there's absolutely nothing magical about sitting cross-legged or, you know, being in silence or, you know, being in a dedicated space. But none of that actually has any kind of magical power. But actually the, the, the sensitivity, some of the shifts of understanding, kind of open doors that we doors that open for us that we discover on retreat, they, they really happen, of course, because of our intention. Our intention to be present, our intention to listen, our intention to learn. And this is actually the magical factor. You know, and without it, it it's just kind of form. It's just ritual or whatever. It is our intention that makes a huge difference. Now, loving-kindness practice is something, you know, that that we can uh, integrate into our lives as much or as little as we find useful. Um, You know, some people find that in in a daily sitting practice, they find it helpful at times to have the whole of their sitting practice, you know, dedicated to loving-kindness meditation. Some people find it helpful just to you know, many times during the day just to briefly visit, you know, that, uh, just a few moments of meta practice. There's never, you know, you never actually do too much. <laughs> Loving kind of practice, we can do too little, but we never actually do too much. And actually the more that we visit that place of reminding ourselves to be present in a way of warmth and friendliness, the more we remember. You know, I personally never think of mindfulness. I don't think mindfulness is hard. I don't think meta practice is hard. I think remembering to be mindful is really hard. I think remembering to to cultivate loving kindness is actually really hard. But the more we do it, the more it's integrated into our lives, of course, the more natural it becomes. Just the more natural it becomes. It becomes very, very accessible to us. What we need to remember is that every moment that we cultivate loving-kindness, we are creating a dedicated space in our lives. We are creating a very intentional life in that moment. And and an intentional life is actually an awake life. It's not an accidental life. We're creating a dedicated, intentional space 
which actually really renews and restores us. Many people, of course, do find it helpful to have a regular practice, to have a regular meditation practice as part of their lives. Most people do. Um, it's, it's a kind of symbol, it's a reminder that, that reminds us to wake up, reminds us to be present. And it actually reminds us about what's truly important for us. Um, Sharon Salzberg, a friend and a colleague of mine, has, has written a wonderful book on loving kindness, which is in our library here. You may have encountered it. And many people actually find it really helpful to, to work with, with that book, to work, you know, which goes through all the dimensions of loving kindness. Um, to have that, I mean, it is a kind of nourishment. It is a sort of nourishment. And I think, you know, in, in a world, a culture where often there seems to be a, a very visible lack of, of sensitivity and loving kindness, the more allies we have, the better. Just in closing, there's just a, a short poem that I would like to read to you, which very much reminds me of the essence of this practice. Uh, it's called Kindness. It says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate, desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. Wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it's you, it's I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So if we end just with a short meditation. Again, just calmly and gently, just settle in into this moment. The sense of warmth and friendliness. And just offering inwardly a real appreciation for the efforts and sincerity and dedication you've brought not only to these days, but to the days in your life 
the efforts to be awake, the efforts to understand, the efforts to deepen, the efforts to connect with others. Just appreciating and honoring that in a capacity we all have to, to look for what is possible and the ways that we do that in our lives. Extending that, the warmth, that same warmth and appreciation to each person in this room and each person in the building. All of those who have served us and looked after us. Appreciating the ways that we've been supported and nourished by the dedication and the silence and the sincerity of everyone around us. And just appreciating, too, all of the people in our lives, those, those who we love and care for and those who we struggled with, who perhaps have really helped us in our own journey of understanding, our own wish to find a significant way of being. And just dedicating our own efforts and intentions, our own practice, to the end of conflict, to the end of pain, to the end of sorrow, wherever it appears. Extending a sensitive awareness and acknowledgement of all of the many beings in our world those close and those far away, those known and those unknown, who might at this moment be in the midst of fear or terror or loneliness, confusion or conflict, just dedicating our efforts, our intention and practice to the end of sorrow, the end of pain, May all beings be free from fear and danger. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be at peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with one another. May all beings live in Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.